one of the big challenges, I think, in your field, Andy, is to cut through the cognitive one-off stuff that people are writing about happiness and yeah. get down to the core of what the brain actually uses to determine whether or not we're happy in the moment. It's about connection and having healthy connections, and we need to encourage them, and then we need to participate with others so that we're getting it ourselves. Whenever you think we began, from that moment forward, our survival depended upon being in a group. And social neuroscientists now tell us that every fold of our cerebral matter, every corner of our brain is dedicated to being in a group. We don't grow up in tight-knit tribes, but where do we spend most of our time when we're awake with other adults? It's work. And work is the new tribe for the 21st century homo sapien. And the good news about that is there's a part of our brain that's hardwired to go to work and to be with other people. The challenge for the workplace and for leaders, business owners, is creating conditions in that workplace where people feel safe. Welcome to another episode of More Happy Life, the podcast that will teach you how to trigger upward spirals of health and happiness in your life. I'm Andy Proctor, a happiness activist whose goal is to make your life more happy with science-backed strategies and powerful interviews. If you enjoy this episode, share it and let me know by tapping the stars in the reviews. Welcome back to another episode of More Happy Life. This is your host, Andy Proctor. I'm so excited to introduce you today to our guest. He is an amazing person, and our interview today was just mind-blowing. I just have been excited to have him on the show for quite some time, and so I want to tell you a little bit about him. His name is Don Ream, and he is an author and CEO of E3 Solutions. He's a provider of employee workplace metrics, which allows organizations to build engaged, high-performance cultures. He focuses on using science-based research to consult with leaders of all levels at an organization within an organization. He is a former science advisor to both Congress and the Secretary of Health and Human Services. I first saw him speak at TEDxBYU a few years ago, and uh, you can find his TED Talk by searching YouTube or, or even TED.com for Can Work Save Our Relationships. He is also the author of the book Thrive by Design, the Neuroscience that Drives High-Performance Cultures, which is published by Forbes Books. I was seriously blown away by his TED Talk, and I believe that what he teaches about workplace well-being is critical for a happier life. So I'm so excited to introduce you to Don Ream. Don, welcome to the show. Thank you so much uh, for being on the show with me. You know, ever since I was front row at your TED Talk uh, in Provo, I never have forgotten your message and have really, I've shared this with a lot of my managers and with coworkers, and I just, I believe it is critical what you talked about. And, you know, I've been thinking about this and studying uh, about this a little bit too. And one study that I read was fascinating. It was from Google on the most effective teams at Google. And they talked about how the number one predictor of their success was actually psychological safety. And I just, I love what you said about this in your TED talk, which I remember and I'll never forget, which is the future of work will be defined more by how it feels than how it pays. And I just, I'd love to talk about this for a minute. So why will work be determined by how we feel? Why are emotions so important in the workplace? Emotions are important everywhere. They, they determine literally everything we do. 
And this is one of the just marvelous advantages and insights that's come to us now from the field of neuroscience where they can now watch the brain in real time. Emotion drives everything we do. That is all human action uh, originates in the parts of the brain, the limbic system that process emotion. And the reason I said that the future of work will be defined more by how it feels and how it pays are two, two key reasons. Uh, first, the way we feel determines how we behave at work, at home, anywhere. So uh, this is what we refer to as the felt experience of being at work. And, and what it feels like when you're at work is a huge determinant, a predominant determinant on how you behave when you're there. The second yeah. reason I, I made that statement is that we have come through 250 years since the Industrial Revolution of an abundance of labor, where there have always been more people than jobs. And in an environment where there are more people than jobs, if you're one of the people that's lucky enough to have a job, the most important thing to you typically is keeping it because you were probably also the sole wage earner in your family. And this has been true since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. What is different today is that that era of labor surplus is gone and it's not going to come back in our professional lifetimes. That is, we're going to have a talent shortage for at least the next 20 years. For the first time in our lives, there are more unfilled jobs in America, 7.3 million as of last month, than there are unemployed people to fill them. And in this environment, for the first time, managers are going to have to learn how to create the conditions where people look forward to coming to work, because people in this economy can work anywhere. You no longer have paycheck leverage over employees. So in an environment where employees can quite literally work anywhere, why are they still coming to work for you? And I would suggest that the key reason is that it feels good being there. That is fascinating. 7.3 million unfilled jobs. Totally agree with that. From my own work history, from hearing the stories of, of many of my friends and coworkers and reasons why people go to a job or leave a job. And I'm, I'm currently the chief happiness officer at a startup. And we were thinking a lot about this as we continue to hire people. And so this is, this is so important, I think. And, and happiness is, is truly important. But that from our perspective at, at E3 Solutions, at my company, happiness is the result of some very specific things, at least lasting happiness. Or the word we use that, that we're more focused on than happiness is engagement. And as yeah. you know, we have a 28-question online survey that measures how engaged employees are. If employees are engaged, and we can, we can break that word down into its component parts, but when employees are engaged, they're happy. Uh, and it's, the reason they're happy when they're engaged is because that's the way we are designed at birth. That is, it's in the human genome. We're herd animals. Homo sapiens are herd animals. We're hardwired to be in a group. And we're hardwired, what that also means, is that we're hardwired to do our best work when we can do so with others. So when we're engaged with other people in healthy ways, the brain just sees that as, as the penultimate place of safety. That's actually the, the conditions that the brain has been looking for every day since birth. So tell me, you were, you were gonna say that uh, you could break down what you mean by engage. So is that the E3 solution? So E3 solutions, it's evaluate, which is our, our survey tool, because you can't manage what you don't measure. So any organization that's uh, interested in engagement needs to be measuring it or you just don't know what's happening. Uh, the second E is to equip. And that is, it, if, if you're going to measure, and we do it by manager, 
because about 70% of how engaged an employee is pivots around their relationship with their immediate manager. Uh, that's a combination of the manager's leadership style and how they connect with team members. So when we measure engagement, we do it by manager. We don't think it's fair to measure managers and then not give them new skills to do better. So the first step is to measure, that's evaluate. The second step is to train them, that's the equip. Mm. Um, and then the third E is to engage. And the engage is, for us, is engaging managers in a regular, steady, new habit-forming process of leading more effectively uh, in a way that will uh, work in what is called the future of work. That is, in this, this new work environment that we're entering into that millennials have been pushing us toward uh, ever since they entered the workforce. But the, the, the challenge for most companies is that these external forces, these external change, as it has happened in the workplace, always moves more quickly than internal change. So organizations are struggling to catch up with the new reality of what millennials, anyone who's 24 to 38, and now Gen Z, anybody who's 23 and younger, what they expect from the workplace. And it's far more than a paycheck in the majority of cases. So how can employers and managers, right, because that's where it starts, uh, become more aware and equipped, right, and able to talk about emotions and, and create a workplace that is filled with, with engagement and more, more the positive emotion? The way we define engagement is we know that every employee knows what level of effort they have to bring so that their manager, supervisor, peer, colleague uh, doesn't pull them on the side, tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, what's, what's going on with you today? What's up? Um, so every employee knows this minimum level of effort they have to bring. But every single one of those individuals, employees, has an additional level of effort that represents what they're fully capable of doing as a human being. So the difference between what someone is capable of doing and what they typically do when they get to work is what we refer to as discretionary effort. Every employee comes to work every day with discretionary effort. And the key thing for employers to understand and leaders to understand is, is that it can only be volunteered. You cannot force discretionary effort out of someone, although some organizations are trying to bribe it out of them, which is what pay for performance is. It's a bribe system. And I know we're not talking mm. about that today, but I can tell you the science on bribing homo sapiens is really ugly. So <laughs> we want to have other ways to elicit this discretionary effort than trying to bribe it from them. Um, and so that's, that's the key thing. What, what are we going to do to get discretionary effort? And so this is, this is where it's such a remarkable win-win. When employees are engaged, when they're volunteering discretionary effort, they're more productive, they're more focused, they're more positive, and they're happier. That is, they're working harder and they're happier doing it than when they're unengaged or disengaged. So this is, and why is that the case? Because that's how we are designed as a species. Every human being is born with an agenda, and it's the same agenda for all of us. Not only do we share 99.9% .9 of our DNA with each other, we share a common operating system that we inherit at birth in the human genome. And that operating system says, get in a group, be a valued member, and that's where you're going to be safest and happiest in life.
Mm, yeah, I remember you kind of talking about that almost as our workplace is our tribe, our new tribe. We go to work to feel like we're a part of a tribe because we, we no longer, I mean, m- the majority of humans uh, don't necessarily belong to a tribe anymore. And so I think that's, I think that's fascinating. Get in a group and, and know your, your role within that group. You also talked about this this whole idea of feeling like you don't belong to the group, and and I think that's maybe what brings up this question of of stress, right? And I think I'd like to talk about stress for a second at work because I think there's two types of stress. And I mean, I, I remember I was really excited about an idea that I was going to be pitching when I was working for a, a pretty large corporation, and I was going to be pitching it to the the top executives. I mean, there was the president and the CEO and a few others, VPs, and I totally believed in this idea. It was it was a very good idea. I thought it was a, if they implemented it, billion-dollar idea uh, across the global organization, and I was excited about it. And so this, I was stressed, really stressed about it, but it was a good stress. It was a challenge. And then there was other times at other uh, jobs where I felt like my job was threatened or my position or my, my belonging wasn't recognized. I, I felt like there was a threat and I, and I felt stressed, but it was a very different type of stress. I, it was a threat-based stress. So I think, I think challenge stress is good. Maybe that's what you're talking about in terms of engagement as well. And then threat stress, I think, is really horrible for us. So I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how employers and managers can decrease that kind of threat stress at work and uh, maybe you know, increase the engagement or the challenge stress. Human beings are designed to tolerate uh, some level of stress, but generally at a temporal level, that is at, for a, a short time frame, not, not constant or chronic. And that's why, just real mm. quickly, why toxic managers have such a negative impact on people's health is that we're not meant to be under stress regularly. So you, you talked about positive stress that might come with a challenge to get something done, to get up the hill, to cross the finish line first, as opposed to negative or toxic stress. Yeah. So this, this all goes back to, to the brain and how it's wired and the limbic system that processes emotion. The limbic system, it includes organs like the amygdala, the hypothalamus, and the hippocampus. This is the epicenter of fight, flight, or freeze. This is where we, we do threat detection as well as process emotion. Challenge uh, does, uh, can create stress, which then activates certain parts of the body. Hormones, chemicals get released. We're more attenuated. We even have more adrenaline. Uh, uh, muscle power increases. Our focus increases. All of that is is a, is a function of threat detection and response to it. The thing about challenge, and we know when we challenge employees, engagement goes up. In fact, one yeah. of the questions in our, in our survey is, uh, do I feel challenged in the work I'm doing? And because we want people to feel a sense of challenge. Hmm. What many leaders uh, forget or don't understand about challenge is it's not just challenging people that, uh, that works, is that they have to celebrate the achievement. So if, if we challenge people, we need to celebrate uh, when, they, when they do get across the finish line, when they go, do get to the top of the hill. Hmm. We have um, employees in our survey that report, we're moving so fast, we're doing these great things, and we never stop to celebrate what we just accomplished. We just run into the next challenge. And that, hmm. is, that will exhaust people and, and burn them out if we can't celebrate and, and recoup. 
Now, the negative stress um, are stressors that uh, are just go on. They're 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 toxic. They're not about achieving positive goals or working together as a team. They're just conditions where the the limbic system is constantly triggering threat conditions. Yeah. And this is one of the big challenges of managers is they're constantly triggering threat in the limbic system to their team members. The nice thing is for us as, as researchers is that we now know what those typical uh, stress causers are that managers do, and we know how to remedy them. And so that's why we, we, we have a number of workshops to get at these issues. We have a workshop, for example, on positive leadership because uh, too many managers are too negative constantly. That triggers threat and, and causes disengagement. We have a workshop on recognition, validation, and feedback because there's not enough of it. And that leaves people bereft of an understanding of how they're doing. And that gets triggered as threat. Mm. Uh, we, we have um, uh, workshops on communication on down the line and one on accountability where we show managers how to hold people accountable without being negative to reduce the levels of stress around holding people accountable. That's so important to not just reward finishing something that you've done this challenge with with more work. <laughs> like say, I think that's what happens is, you know, instead of stopping to celebrate, they just say, "Oh, great, did a great job. Here's here's more work to do." <laughs> instead, uh, they they pause and and we do some sort of ritual or something that allows us to celebrate, which I think is I think is huge. So I, I love that. We've talked a lot on this podcast about. You know, should you should you quit your job and and just go do something you're passionate about? And some episodes say, you know, maybe you should have a little bit of a a bridge. Some episodes say, no, we should definitely just go for it and quit the job. But when we're spending ninety thousand hours of our life, you know, on average, I guess, at work, you know, if you're not happy where you work, that's a huge chunk of your life. And I would just I want to ask you, what would you recommend for people who don't necessarily feel safe in their workplace and who aren't who aren't engaged or you know thriving it, it's a key question and, and it's it's hard because many managers are still managing in the old model which was top-down hierarchical and punitive and you could manage people that way in an era of labor abundance but it's not going to work going forward but managers don't have a lot of models about how to do it differently they're often great people, technically competent, um, but they don't really understand uh, the skill sets that create the conditions where people look forward to coming to work, which is why I wrote the book for Forbes, Thrive by Design, the neuroscience that drives high performance cultures. And I wrote the book specifically to give managers a roadmap for what to do. Now, it's also a good book for employees because they can read the book and get insights on what isn't working and why. And I... My, my first wish, I guess, uh, for employees is to start to make their managers more self-aware of their impact um, and to find ways to do that. Maybe they want to recommend having an anonymous survey with Survey Gizmo or Survey Monkey, and it's sent to the, uh, the team members asking them questions about how can we do things better, what would you suggest, and then the team meets and talks about it. There, there are two kinds of managers that we have found. The first type, one, the, the ones that will be successful going forward are the ones that are more made self, they're made self-aware of some things they do and the negative impacts. And they go, oh, shoot, that's not what I wanted. Well, yeah, I, I can do that better. Um, and then they change and shift and grow and adapt. They're resilient, um, or to use a popular term, they're more agile than, than other managers. 
the other mm -hmm. managers uh, uh, get input on on how they could be self-aware and uh, they don't care. And it's like, well, if I wanted your opinion, I'd ask you for it. We actually had an employee write that in one of their surveys. Their manager told that to them. Hmm. Um, and managers who think it's the employees and not them and the managers that think that they're fine and it's everyone else, they're probably on a spectrum in that case. They might be on the narcissism spectrum. They could be on the sociopath spectrum. Um, and there's a lot of managers like that out there and they're horrible to work for. And if it turns out that's the kind of manager you work for, move on. Hmm. Um, but do an exit interview with HR and let them know why you're leaving. Yeah. It's interesting. When, when you look at why employees leave, the research term is, is typically when they voluntarily terminate. Money rarely shows up uh, above six on the list of why they quit. And, and those six things that occur before money are, have to do primarily with the relationship with managers or, or supervisors. That is, is, we know that employees join companies, they quit managers. And, and, they, and employees should let the organization know. I'm, I'm not a big fan of going on um, Glassdoor.com and, and slamming an organization digitally because yeah. organizations I have found are trying to improve. And that's kind of a passive aggressive approach. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say anything. I'm, I'm not going to tell anybody, try to make it better. I'm just going to leave, turn around and, and smack them. And, and that's, a, <laughs> I think, a, a total lack of professional maturity. Yeah. Um, try to change the organization before you bolt and, and do it for yourself, do it for other members of the team. But no one should have to work in an environment today that is constantly or consistently toxic. There's just no reason to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. And I think, I think, uh, I think it is wise to, 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 to look for a bridge if you are looking to do that. But yeah, if it's constantly toxic, then I don't, I don't think it is worth it. I think there's so many health markers, so much research on all these health markers that it's just not, this is not good for your body. It's not good for your mind. And I appreciate your, your, um, your input on that. So thank you. This has been so amazing. I, I wish, uh, we could just talk all day about all these things. I love learning from you as well. And I want to, I want to ask for the listeners out there, what other advice other than what we've talked about, would you have for listeners who want a more happy life today? It's to understand what makes us uh, truly happy at our core. From a neuroscience perspective, it's connection, it's attachment, or uh, what the, the clinical term is safe and secure attachment figures. And growing up, those are typically our parents. As adults, they're typically our partner, uh, our immediate family, our intimate family, uh, and then of course at work. The part of the brain that is in charge and determines whether or not we're safe, which is the limbic system, not your prefrontal cortex. Safety is not a cognitive decision, it's an emotional decision. But that part of the brain is not capable of understanding whether it's at home or at work. It just knows whether or not it has safe and secure connections. So for people that want to be happy, having safe and secure connections is the quickest, easiest, most thorough and pervasive way to do it. The fact is we are not designed to be alone or isolated. And if you are isolated in your life, the, the clinical term is emotional isolation. If you are emotionally isolated, you're 10 times more likely to suffer from clinical depression. Ten, you're twice as likely to catch a cold because your immune system is compromised. And if you're pervasively uh, alone for an extended period of time or with a sudden separation of a safe and secure attachment figure, it can literally kill you. 
Mm -hmm. um, and the, the illustration of this that's the most commonly seen and understood is the couple that's married 45 or 50 years and one of them passes. And what do we know happens in many instances with the surviving spouse, sometimes within hours, they pass away as well. Mm -hmm. um, used to be referred to as the broken heart syndrome. It's not a syndrome, it's not a mystery anymore. It was first discovered, by the way, by a brilliant uh, British uh, MD psychiatrist by the name of John Bowlby, Dr. John Bowlby in, in World War II. He was working with war widows and war orphans, but that's another story, perhaps another podcast. Yeah. But it was discovered uh, uh, by medical science, I don't know, 70, 75 years later, um, in an article in the New England Journal of Medicine, one of the most prestigious journals in medicine in the world, I was discovered by a Japanese doctor. There's a muscle in the heart that's, uh, that looks like a baby octopus. Um, so mm. it's named after the Japanese word for octopus. Um, but this muscle, under cases of what um, the docs discovered, what they called acute emotional distress, this muscle just stops working and you're done. Um, and this is the result that there's a, the, the limbic system in the brain views other people as resources, as important vital resources. And it views those resources interchangeably. That is, it views those social resources interchangeably with physical resources like food and water. Hmm. So when we lose the safe and secure connection, it's devastating to the part of the brain that determines whether or not we're happy. Um, and also, the, the limbic system will never feel safe if it's alone. So if people want to be happy, and if you just look at the research on, uh, on octogenarians, what are, what are the key characteristics of people that live the longest? They have very robust social networks that they rely on and interact with regularly. We are social animals. We are relational animals. We need to be in relationships. In fact, Dr. Cohn, Dr. James Cohn, this brilliant neuroscientist at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, and I, uh, I quote him in the book, I think, in the heading of chapter uh, two or three. He says that the primary ecology of human beings is other human beings. And if we want to be happy, I know there's lots of, there are lots of books out there, thousands of them actually, that talk about happiness and how to be happy. And they, they'll come up with a three-step uh, program or a 10-step or these three things you need. All of that stuff, all of that stuff is anecdotal because it's not mm. empirically validated research. One of the big challenges, I think, in, in, in your field, Andy, is to, is to cut through uh, the, the, the cognitive uh, one-off stuff that people are writing about happiness and yeah. get down to the core of what the brain actually uses to determine whether or not we're happy in the moment. Because people can follow these paths. It's this word, it's that word, it's these three words. And the fact is, it isn't about those three words or that approach or this. It's about connection and having healthy connections. And we need to encourage them ourselves. That is, we need to create them for others that we care for and love. And then we need to participate with others so that we're getting it ourselves. And there's just all kinds of research on this, Andy. For example, research on people who go to church regularly. They live longer. And why is that? Well, uh, there could, I mean, I'm not, I'm not ruling out a metaphysical cause and, and maybe they're indistinguishable. But people that go to church regularly are just in healthier relationships, uh, consistent, predictable relationships where they know they're not alone. And, and that is enough. Um, and you mentioned um, this, this importance of being in a tribe. The, the origin of this for us as a species could be metaphysical, not denying that. 
But there also is a, a, a very real um, reason for this in terms of our social evolution. If you go back just 10,000 years, if, if you were a, a human being, a homo sapien, alone on the open savannas of the Serengeti or the Maasai Mara in East Africa, your chances of survival were de minimis. They were small to nil. But if you were out there in a group, a clan, a tribe, your chances of survival skyrocketed. So for whenever you think we began, and it doesn't really matter to me when you think we began as a species, but from that moment forward, our survival depended upon being in a group. And, and social neuroscientists now tell us that every fold of our cerebral matter, that is every corner of our brain, is dedicated to being in a group. And as you mentioned earlier in the broadcast, um, we don't grow up in tight-knit tribes anymore. Most of us don't. Yeah. But where do we spend most of our time when we're awake with other adults? It's work. And work is the new tribe for the 21st century homo sapien. And the good news about that is, is there's, there's a part of our brain that's hardwired to go to work and to be with other people. The challenge for the workplace and for leaders, business owners, is creating conditions in that workplace where people feel safe. And, and that's going to be dependent upon how they feel. And the felt experience is largely the result of the quality of relationships that we're enmeshed and, and immersed with. That's the key. One, if we want to be happy, associate, connect, be a healthy uh, partner and, and create healthy relationships for the people you love. And that primarily means you need to be more consistent and predictable in the way you show up. If you are moody, mercurial in how you show up for your friends, your friends, their limbic systems code you as threat. Hmm. So uh, we all need to show up better, more consistently and predictable for those that we love and care for. I think that's critical. And I think uh, it just makes me think a lot of the book Bowling Alone and how our society is turning into, well, there's, there's a loneliness epidemic. And I think you really touched on a lot of the stuff as you were talking about this and you know how loneliness is such a huge predictor of of all these horrible, you know, health markers. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and that's fascinating about that, that muscle in the heart, the acute emotional distress causing that muscle to stop working. And I think, you know, I think it's also really, I'm optimistic with uh, Barbara Friedrichson's research on positivity resonance. And, you know, a lot of people maybe think, well, that sounds so overwhelming. And does that mean I have to go back to church or to go to a church if I don't at all or whatever? And, and maybe maybe it does, you know. But I also think that there's a lot to be said about those uh, those micro moments of of love or of connection that you can experience with even strangers, you know, even somebody that you have never met before. Um, I mean, I've had such incredible connection or connective uh, conversations with Uber drivers, even. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, and I think that that's that's hopeful as well. But I agree. I totally agree that I think we do need to start thinking about, you know, what, what are we a part of? And, and if we don't have a, a place of work where we feel like we belong, you know, are we a part of a church or a club or an organization uh, or a volunteer uh, system or something that helps us to feel like we do belong? And I think that it is critical that we do that if we don't feel that right now. So thank you so much. Thank you for, for, uh, for highlighting that and really showing the importance of this. So it, it is, it's critical. And I, I agree. I think it all points back to people and our connections and people matter. People matter.
So if, if your listeners want to hear more about this, especially if they happen to be a manager or a leader of people, uh, I'd love for them to go to youtube.com and just search for Don Ream TED Talk. That's D-O-N-R-H-E-E-M TED Talk. And they'll find that TED Talk where you are. And they'll probably see you in the front row too, Andy. <laughs> I think I actually do make it make an yeah, appearance yeah. on your video. <laughs> see you in the, in the audience shots. There's also the book. Just go to Amazon and search for Thrive by Design. Um, and my name, Don Ream, and the book will come up. Um, they can also go to donream.com, and we have lots of resources and things there to help people as well, including my own podcast, where they can go on and, and hear more conversations with leaders, managers, uh, researchers on this role of engagement uh, in the workplace. Love it. I love that so much. And uh, I'll put all these links on uh, the show notes as well. Um, and any other links you want to send me, please do so. I know that you have a lot of really great resources on e3solutions.com too that I saw. So that's really exciting too. So thank you so much, Don, for being here. I'm really excited to share this with all the listeners out there. Oh, so, so happy to be a part of what you're doing to help people find happiness in their life. I'm very impressed with it with what you're doing and, and love being supportive of it and be a part, being a part of it. Thanks so much. I really hope this episode helped you to have a more happy life today. If you enjoy this episode, share it and let me know by tapping the stars in the reviews. You can also find me on Instagram at morehappylife or by going to morehappylife.co. Thanks for listening and see you soon.